How are you going to help kids that may be coming in? How are you going to help those students and support them, not just in learning, but also in their power and their status, right? Or is this going to be some of like, like second generation segregation, right? Where like, you know, you have the kids of color and the kids of lower status are treated with less power within a, within a school that numerically is desegregated. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher. This is my 17th year in the classroom, and this, of course, is all the above. Your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. If you are new to the show, welcome. We hope you enjoy your time here, and we hope that you enjoy it so much that you go ahead and give us that, that five-star review on, on whatever streaming app you might be using. And if you're on YouTube, go ahead and hit that thumbs up. Jeff. We are back live and in color. Yeah, man. <laughs> live and in color for sure. This is our our first uh, actual filming uh, in the new year, Manuel. We've, uh, you know, we've, we've been traveling. We've been on break over the holidays. We've been podcasting. But, uh, you know, first time for real back in the studio in 2021, man. And uh, how how's it feel on your end? Feels great. Feels great. Um, this, you know, you say back in the studio and those who've been with us for a while <laughs> know that the original studio, the OG studio, we're still not there yet. So we're still recording from our homes. So again, we appreciate those of y'all who have contributed to the cause either via Anchor or Cash App or Venmo to help us like keep the show going in this visual format from home. And yeah, Jeff, it feels good. It feels good to be back. You know, we dropped plenty of episodes. We, we continue to drop a new a new, you know, episode each week. It's just, you know, they were passing period episodes. And if you are watching on YouTube and you're like, what is passing period? Those are pretty much podcast exclusives that are audio only where we dive into some other news that maybe didn't make a, a full episode. So if you're watching on YouTube, definitely, definitely consider checking us out on, on whatever your favorite podcast streaming app is. But in any case, we are here today with a full episode chock full of headlines and, and a deep dive and shout outs and all that. So Jeff, can you, can you let us know, break it down, what's on the agenda today? Well, Manuel, we got a good one for everybody, and uh, we have a guest coming to us from the other side of the country, from the East Coast, um, who is a fascinating uh, educator, um, a, a longtime friend, like from way, way back in the day, um, and that is Robert Cotto Jr. Um, he is uh, a well-known educator in the city of Hartford. Um, he's an education researcher at Trinity College. He's a former school board member uh, in Hartford, uh, a former high school social studies teacher, and someone who really has a lot of expertise in the areas of education policy, particularly policies around equity and integration, and uh, policies that impact urban uh, education around the country. Um, and in this moment, right, when we are about to get a new secretary of education, um, an official replacement for uh, she who shall not be named right now, uh, Miguel Cardona, who, of course, uh, is from the state of Connecticut. Uh, who better to bring on than uh, an amazing, uh, incredible educator from Connecticut uh, to give us a bit of perspective, not only on kind of the policy landscape and what our priorities should be, um, but also, you know, kind of looking ahead with a new uh, with a new administration. So Robert Cotto Jr. is here. He's going to be joining us. It's going to be great. You definitely don't want to miss it. Sounds dope. Sounds dope. All right, folks. But up first, we have our do now where we take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. And that's coming up next. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for today's Do Now. Let's, let's take a look at some of the headlines in education, especially some, some headlines that you might have missed. Now, Jeff, how, how are we going to do the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, we're going to uh, take a little attendance. We got a roll call. Going to see who's in the house with us today. Roll call. All right. Yes, I sir. love it. Let's take attendance. We need some accountability. Who's here? Who's not? All right, Jeff, first name on the roster for today is um, Mr. Moneybags. 
<laughs> Mr. Moneybags. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice. Uh, so I think we must be talking about like um, Jeff Bezos, uh, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, um, you know, the, the, the Saudi princes, those kind of folks, Mr. Moneybags. Oh, yeah. Those kind of folks who worked really hard for their fortune, you know, and well, just got to bootstraps yes. and, and just... <laughs> Yeah, tugged, tugged real hard on those oil money bootstraps. Yeah, yes. came up from nothing. Came up from nothing. Um, yeah, so yeah, Mr. Moneybags basically is a uh, everybody out there who who could be contributing to to the cause in terms of teacher salary and teacher pay and has decided not to because according to the most recent numbers from the Economic Policy Institute, the the teacher pay gap or the teacher wage penalty is is really really big despite that summer or that year of red for ed strikes that we saw sweeping the nation. All right, so let's let's get into this. These numbers are perhaps not surprising to a lot of educators, but they do speak on the, the ongoing battle for fair and just compensation for, for educators out there. So the latest analysis by the Economic Policy Institute shows that the teacher pay gap, which is essentially the difference in compensation between teachers and similarly educated professionals shrank a bit in 2019, but still that gap persists. In 21 states and the District of Columbia, teachers are paid less than 80 cents on the dollar earned by similar college-educated workers. In percentage terms, that means teachers experience a roughly a 19.2% wage penalty as compared to other college grads. The lessening of this teaching penalty from 22% back in 2018 to 19.2% in 2019 might reflect the raises enacted in the wake of widespread red for ed strikes and other actions by teachers and teacher unions in 2018 and 2019, particularly in some of the states where teacher pay lagged the most. But still, this current gap is much larger than it was in the 90s. The regression adjusted teaching wage penalty in 1996 was 6%. In 2019, that penalty has grown to 19.2%. So Jeff, you know, we educators, we went to college, we got our college degrees, and we are serving in schools and districts across the country. And compared to folks who also went to college and also got their degrees, we are being paid roughly 20% less than they are. Um, yeah. What do you have to say about this, this teacher pay gap? Uh, I say it's whack. Uh, it's trash. Uh, it's unfair. It's unjust. Uh, it's a uh, it's a manifestation of the devaluing of education and the dehumanizing uh, kind of nature of our economic system. I would say, um, and you know, it's it's crazy to me, right? That in in this historical moment, right when. Everybody is like, oh, snap, like, how do we deal with all these people in this country who are completely out of touch with reality, right? With just basic facts and whether that's climate change or election results or everything in between, right? Um, we, we seem befuddled at how, like, how we deal with a deeply ignorant, and I don't mean that in the accusatory sense, I mean in the literal, like, not having knowledge of some basic truths, right? Um, and willful ignorance, right? Um, like how we deal with that. I think the, you know, certainly the most important way that we can deal with it by not allowing it to happen again is to strengthen our system of public education, right? Um, which of course starts uh, certainly with our schools. And yet, we have a situation where not only uh, you know has this gap that we've talked about a few times on the show over the years persisted, but in many ways is you know is frankly um, getting worse, right? As the um, as the kind of gaps in our economic the K-shaped recovery we're experiencing, uh, you know, continues. Now, well, one of the most fascinating. Uh, data points in the study uh, to me that that really like was a red flag on top of the red flags, right? Um, had to do with the the gender comparison, and so you know some people out there might be saying, right, like, well, you know, teaching is a profession that's primarily made up of women, right? And women in general in society uh, make less than men. Now, 
putting aside for the moment the deeply problematic nature of that fact, right? Um, uh, <laughs> let's, let's just say, okay, it is that way right now. So is, is what we're seeing with teaching just a mirroring of that fact, right? And the answer is absolutely no. That not only do we continue to see that women in education experience this pay penalty, but also over the last you know, 40, 50 years or so, we used to have a situation where women experienced a pay premium for entering into education, meaning women who were educators got paid more than sort of, you know, the average for comparably educated and skilled women in the workplace. And now not only are they not paid more, they're paid significantly less than other women uh, of comparable education and training. So, uh, you know, this, this just says to me, like it's, yes, all of the societal issues are at play in education uh, in this issue as well. And on top of that, we have just systematically devalued the profession of teaching. And even coming out of this massive wave of, of union activism and strikes that has certainly helped you know, in states like West Virginia, Oklahoma, Arizona, uh, et cetera, close the just like ridiculous, uh, you know, straight up poverty wages that uh, teachers were being paid and frankly are kind of still being paid, but at least it's a little better, right? Um, you know, this, this is a massive problem. It's good that we have heard, you know, the, the Biden administration talking about it, but um, this is wild, man. Like we, you know, we don't care. This is, <laughs> money is how America shows it cares. We don't care about teachers in this country. Um, and it, it's, it's sad, it's disturbing, uh, it's frustrating, it's a lot of stuff, man. What you, as a, as a teacher who is, um, you know, captured in this data set here, man, well, what, what do you think, what do you think? Yeah, so I mean, one thing that I'm glad you pointed out is that it hasn't always been this way. I think a lot of folks are of the the impression that teachers have always been paid like like trash because the field is primarily women. Um, but it wasn't always like that, and you know, this shows that the the gap has actually gotten worse over the time. Even as recently as the '90s, since the '90s, the gap has gotten so much worse. And there was a time where where teaching and working in education, especially for for Black Americans who were uh, kept out of so many other professions, you know, especially before Brown v. Board, like teaching was like a great profession for a lot of educated black Americans to go and, and, and teach and work and, and, and be compensated. And now, now you look at it and it's just, um, it's like, what has happened? And one thing that this, you know, first of all, first of all, let me just say, for myself as a teacher, I, with my compensation here, um, based on all my years experience and I went and got a doctorate and all the extra units and all that stuff, I feel good about my individual compensation here. All right. So one thing I push back on sometimes is just this idea that all, edu all educators across the board are paid dirt wages. The fact is I, as a history teacher in my position here versus a history teacher perhaps in Arizona or Texas, like it is it is not the same. And those history teachers in Arizona and Texas deserve that compensation that, that I receive and that um, some other history teachers receive for sure. So this is not like just blanketly across the board. I think it really does matter uh, state by state, district by district. But yeah, however, absolutely. in any case, um, yeah, one, one thing, one reason we chose the story for this episode here is because there has been talk about raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour and Biden has has discussed it and he's I think is I think he already issued an executive order to raise the federal minimum wage at least for federal employees to $15 an hour and there is some folks on on the social medias on the internet's saying that like whoa if you calculate that out that comes out to whatever roughly 30,000 a year and beginning teacher salary in Texas or in this state or in that state is 31,000, so why would anybody wanna be a teacher when they could just work a minimum wage job and get paid almost the same? It's like, well, perhaps we need to pay teachers more. Perhaps you are actually, actually uh, formulating an argument in support of increasing teacher compensation because it's ridiculous that teachers in parts of our country are being paid that little for so much, especially in 2020 and 2021 when teachers have had to really reinvent their practice out of nowhere to to deal with this pandemic. So yeah, and you know, last thing I'll say is that a lot of folks out there are also of the of the impression that like teacher benefits are so major and so big. You know, <laughs> folks talk about these 
Cadillac health plans that teachers have, and that's why you know maybe their compensation is lower, but their benefits package is so big it balances out, or it's even better than what other people have. And um, you know the report, the Economic Policy Institute, they get into that too, and they say, well, if you factor in those teacher benefits packages that have been fought for, that you know unions and and teacher activity has had to really really advocate hard for, even if you factor that in, the gap is still there. The wage penalty is still there. Instead of being 19%, it's 10 point something percent. So, you know, it, it, it decreases the gap a little bit, but those benefits that teachers receive, spoiler alert, those are the benefits that all workers should receive. All workers across the United States should have a, a basic healthcare uh, plan, basic dental plan, like the things that teachers get. This is not like some kind of like wild insurance where like everything is covered and I go to the doctor and they pay me for going. Like, no, it's not, it's not that crazy Cadillac stuff that people talk about. It's just, it's the basics that every worker should receive. So yeah, Jeff, this, this gap is, it's sad. It's not surprising, of course, but it's, um, you know, it's just a good reminder that it doesn't have to be this way. It wasn't this bad as recently as the nineties. So like, stop thinking that it has to be this way. We can, we can do better. We can do better. Yeah, we can do better. Um, and, and I'm glad you started with the point about like the, the lack of uniformity of this issue across the country, not only state by state, but even within states, right? Like there are plenty of very nice, well-funded districts in California where teachers are doing just fine. Right. And there are also plenty of places where it's hard to live on your teaching salary. And, um, you know, particularly in the earlier years of, of your profession, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think that uh, the benefits question not only is is just sort of funny and laughable on its face. Right. Like I've had I when I was a teacher in New York City, I was part of the you know city health system. Same thing when I was an AP and a principal. And, um, you know, and I've had private, you know, uh, working in the, in the nonprofit sector uh, insurance plans. And I will tell you, you know, in some ways, the city plans maybe were better, like prescription drug co-pays might have been a little lower. But that's mostly just a factor of being part of a much larger system. Right. And uh, so anybody who's bitter about that might might want to take the logic and extend it and say, well, what if we had such a large system that we were all a part of that, that we could drive down prices for everyone? Man, well, like, I, you know. Think of that. I, w I wonder what that might be called. Uh, Communism, you know. Jeff. But yeah, what if there was even a single payer, just one? Uh, just, just a thought. Your socialist uh, for, agenda, Jeff. <laughs> for folks to think about. Um, and and fr frankly, what if your students could be a part of that system as well and didn't have to like miss school for a week because they had a sore tooth or, you know, not see the board because they couldn't afford glasses or things of that nature. Like interesting questions to think about. But also it's important to note, Manuel, that teachers and educators, it's not like the, the government is just magically handing them benefits. Like you're paying for your benefits yes. as well. Yes. So yes, your employer also contributes, right? But like you are paying. It is not magical money that comes from, you know, just, just grows from on trees. From Mr. Moneybags. Yeah, Correct. from it's, Mr. It's Moneybags, money. exactly. I'm like, so, you know, in as much as this is, you know, it is true that perhaps a larger portion of the total compensation of teachers doesn't hit their checkbook as in as much as it would if you worked in the private sector. It's also true that part of that bargaining is like is giving up some wages so that those benefits will be in place. Right. It's a, this is not like a free giveaway. So um, I think folks have like kind of misframed the issue there. And um, yeah, man, I am excited to see like Biden, you know, has talked about we need to increase teacher pay. So. Look, man, it's time to put uh, your money where your mouth is, uh, literally, and uh, let's get folks paid, man, because this this gap is huge. And in, a, in an era where we have big issues with teacher retention um, and, and uh, you know, teacher recruitment into the profession, um, folks got to get paid, man. Like, it's, yeah. it doesn't make logical sense economically for a lot of people to pursue education right now. So we have to fix that. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. All right, Jeff, what's the next name on our roster for today? All right, man. Well, next up on our list is, uh, it's, it's truth, man. The truth. Truth. 
feel like there was an artist named Truth before, right? Wasn't there like a rapper named Truth? There had to be a rapper named Truth. I don't know who it was, <laughs> but let's be real. There gotta be some dude out there be, being okay. like, I'm the truth. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And then yes. there's probably a few, you know, spelled different ways. Yeah, T-R-U-F-F or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the truth. Yeah. Yes, uh, I'm sure. I'm sure that person is out there. And prop, props to you, the truth. But um, that's not who we're talking about uh, today, Manuel. We're talking about uh, historical truth. Just things mm. that actually happened versus a, a white supremacist imperialist imagination of things that happened. Uh, and that being in the form of the now notorious 1776 uh, 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 project coming out of the Trump White House in response to the, uh, of course, Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, 1619 project uh, coming out of the New York Times and the great work of Nicole Hannah-Jones. So let's get into this piece. This is uh, coming to us uh, from a story in the Washington Post by Jillian Brockell. And uh, in the same week that it was published, the Biden administration took down from the White House website and rescinded by executive order Donald Trump's infamous 1776 commission report. Historians, educators, and frankly, Manuel, most people who actually read uh, decried the report <laughs> as highly problematic. Several historians said it was particularly offensive that the report was released on Martin Luther King Jr. Day and included several photos of King and quotes that historians said were taken out of context. The suggestion that affirmative action programs are somehow antithetical to the vision of Martin Luther King Jr. is simply ludicrous, said Princeton historian Kevin M. Cruz. It's a hack job. It's not a work of history, said American Historical Association Executive Director James Grossman. This is written as if no historical scholarship has been produced in nearly 70 years. So it's bereft of any professional historical sensibility at all. There are no historians on this commission. Would you take your car to a garage where there's no mechanic? I don't know where to begin, said public historian Alexis Coe. This report lacks citations or any indication books were consulted, which explains why it's riddled with errors, distortions, and outright lies. So, uh, Manuel, we could go on, right? I we just could. pulled a few <laughs> of the quotes from that one article. There are many, many more. Um, and thankfully now, for those of you out there looking, if you, if you, if you click on any links that people had posted on Twitter or elsewhere to the 1776 commission report. It is no longer on the White no House longer. website. When you click on that page, it says error 404 or whatever, you know, not page not found. So thank you uh, to whoever <laughs> did that. Um, but you can Google it out there and find the PDF of it. It's bananas. And uh, Manuel, as a history teacher, um, I, I mean, come on, man, speak on it here. I, I want to hear your thoughts. I mean, honestly, it's just hilarious. For anybody who hasn't looked at it, first of all, kudos to you for not even wasting your time on it. And, um, you know, let me just take a take a glance at the, the table of contents for you here. <laughs> oh, um, so, so bad. you know, it opens up with all the, you know, glowing glowing mythology of America and the meaning of the declaration and a constitution of principles. And then the, the first section that really like dives in is, is entitled it's chapter four, if you want to call it a chapter, I don't know, um, challenges to America's principles. And, you know, I think we all can agree that regardless of how you feel about those founding principles, there have been um, moments in American history where particular aspects of those of those ideas were especially, especially either challenged or, or um, you know, new light had been brought upon them on as to whether or not they're true. And, and you know, this report goes into those challenges fairly. There's a section on slavery as being a challenge to America's principles. And I think, um, or I hope most people could could agree that slavery is, is certainly, certainly a bad thing. However, it's, it's referenced here, you know, just it was one of those challenges. And right behind slavery in the chapter comes progressivism, you know. Progressivism, it's <laughs> calling for, for America to do better and to bring justice 
for all peoples. Um, it has been a challenge to America's principles, along with fascism, communism, and together, listed together in a total of one page is the challenge of racism and identity politics. Mm. So it's kind of hilarious how it's laid out. Jeff, I will be honest. This reminds me of if I were back in middle school and had to create like a big fancy report for my history class. It reminds me pretty much of what I would have probably offered up, which is to say a report that has a whole lot of nothing in there, quotes taken out of context <laughs> to make it sound like I know what I'm talking about. Plenty yeah. of images of mm -hmm. Martin Luther King and Frederick Douglass, you know, American yeah. American heroes. And the yeah. cover, the cover, you know, they did their thing on the cover, the graphic design <laughs> of it. Pretty nice, pretty nice. Uh, um, the yes. only thing I would add to it if I were in middle school, it's, you know, I'd probably put it in one of those, you know, plastic uh, report cover things that, that let the teacher nice. know you, you, you did extra great work here. That's yeah, basically man. what this is, essentially. <laughs> it's laughable. I love oh, all those quotes God. that you read out, Jeff, from, from historians. Like, would you take your car to a to a, a auto shop that didn't have a mechanic there? Cause yeah, there's no citations in here. It would not have passed my school's uh, senior defense requirement for all graduating seniors where they have to uh, present artifacts demonstrating their, their growth and competency in research. This would not pass. There's no citations there. Um, all the, the quotes are super out of context. There's no real analysis here. It's just fairy tales. It's, it's a bunch of fairy tales that are presented. And there is, of course, uh, my, my fear, and you know, I continue to be worried about this, even though this report has disappeared from the White House's website. But um, the part that gives me the most trouble is, is what they say about the role of being a teacher. This is clearly an attack on, on teachers teaching progressive, critical content and helping students have a critical lens of, of the past and, and of their future. And, you know, in this report, it says that the primary duty of schools is to teach students the basic skills needed to function, such as reading, writing, and math. And then it goes into educators must convey a sense of enlightened patriotism that equips each generation with knowledge of America's founding principles and a deep reverence for their liberties and a profound love for their country. This is the type of stuff you see in, um, you know, fascist states, no yeah. doubt, no yeah. doubt. And yeah. it's, it's that part of it is troubling because there's a lot of folks out there who are making their living right now promoting this type of stuff and selling their, their services and promoting their podcasts and shows about how we got to fight back against quote unquote woke teachers and critical race theory and this and that. So yeah, man, yeah. crazy. It is crazy. Um, I had really the same reaction in my head. I was like, oh, this is not fascist at all. Like <laughs> instilling this sense of enlightened patriotism and love for the country. I'm like, I think that's not at all the role of education whatsoever. I think, you know, it, in fact, that is antithetical to the role of education, which really, uh, you know, in, in the words of our uh, recent guest, Goldie Muhammad, should be about teaching things like criticality, not, uh, you know, uh, blindly following the mythology that your, you know, twisted elders have, have taught you. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy to me how just counter to the very, like, essence of what it means to be educated, uh, this, this report is, Manuel, and yet... In as much as we can sit here and laugh at it and kind of cast stones at it and just be glad that it's gone and that sort of thing. The, the language, the substance of what's in that report is far closer to the language, to the messaging, to the substance that's in many American history textbooks in this country than I think most of us would like to think we're comfortable with. And uh, and so, I, if anything, I hope what comes out of this is a sense of like, you know what, we we not only should we not be in the business of simply teaching a made up mythology, right, which is what this report is, the the sort of quasi mythology realm <laughs> that most of our uh, of our textbooks live in, right, where like war just happens. It, there was a war 
out, you know, it was an outbreak of conflict. And, uh, you know, there was no power dynamics at play. There was just this, this world in which white men became presidents for 200 years and, and those sorts of things, right? Um, and where, you know, the rich people were just rich. They didn't exploit anyone to get that way. They just, you know, God wanted it to be that way <laughs> or that sort of thing. Uh, you know, I think it runs deeper in our curriculum than, um, than we would like to think. And of course, this stupid report is ridiculous to its core. And yet, hopefully it's instructive on the work we still have to do. Yeah, agreed. I'm glad it's short. It's 20 pages? It's a little long for Donald Trump, man. I heard he likes two-page memos with pictures. Oh, you know he didn't read this <laughs> okay. thing. You know he didn't read this. Yeah, it's about 20 pages. And then there's, <sighs> in the appendix, they have the Declaration of Independence itself and some yes. other stuff. They have a, a section. Yeah. I did not actually read Appendix 3. Um, titled Created Equal or Identity Politics. Nice. Um, nice. Yeah, I didn't even read that section. <laughs> I um, didn't read that one either, but that's great. I'm reading that as soon as we're done. It's here, crazy. <laughs> so yeah, um, the one thing, oh. you know, I was pleased to see that the link to to this report disappeared like on inauguration day. Like that was fast. This thing here yeah. today, gone tomorrow. Uh, I do wish though that link, instead of showing, you know, 404 error or gateway error or whatever it shows, I wish it would have redirected to something, you know, may, I don't know, maybe the 1619 project or something just to like, yeah. just to like stick it to, to the folks who are, who are really excited about this report and wanting to dive in. Just like, actually, here's some actual research with, uh, you know, clear research base and foundation and, and clear authors. I don't even know who actually did the writing on this. There's nobody like that I saw that's yeah. credited with actually writing it. Like it could have been some intern. It could have been you know, some podcaster out there that's like, you know, glowing towards Trump and Trump's like, oh, why don't you write this? Uh, who knows? Whatever. It's trash. We have talked about it for more than it has has been worth in terms of airtime. <laughs> exactly. We'll say that. <laughs> exactly. So, all right, folks, that, that about does it for today's Do Now. All right. Up next is our seminar segment and you don't want to miss that. All right. Stay tuned. What up, AOTA family? Now, we really appreciate your support. Some of you have reached out uh, letting us know that you would love to leave a five-star review and do a little write-up, but you can't seem to find it on Apple Podcasts because it's kind of buried there. So just so you know, if you are using Apple Podcasts, if you go to your library, which has all the shows that you follow, if you click on our show and then scroll, you gotta scroll all the way down to the bottom, at least on my phone, on my version, that's that's how you do it. Scroll all the way down to the bottom, then you'll see the reviews there and uh, you could leave us that five stars. And if you have a moment to write a little, a little write-up, that would be great. These sorts of things help us show up in more educator searches when folks are out there trying to find podcasts to listen to about education and your support goes a long way. Thank you so much. Now back to the show. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We are so excited to have you with us and super excited to have today's guest. He is none other than Robert Cotto Jr., um, educator, extraordinaire, researcher, former teacher, former school board member, coming to us all the way from Hartford, Connecticut today. Uh, Robert Cotto, welcome to All the Above. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Jeff and Manuel, for having me here. Well, we are going to jump in and we want to start by telling you a little bit about our guest today. Uh, Robert has had a fascinating career. Um, he is a lecturer, policy analyst and director of the Hartford Magnet Trinity College Academy Partnership at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. That's a mouthful. Um, he is a <laughs> former member of the Hartford Board of Education, where he served uh, for eight years. He began his career as a high school social studies teacher at the Metropolitan Learning Center, which is an interdistrict magnet school intended to provide a high quality education and promote racial, ethnic, and economic integration. Robert's academic work focuses on K-12 education policy, as well as education reform movements in the U.S. and Puerto Rico. In particular, he studies the history and current impact of educational testing, school choice, and teacher-led innovation and management policies, particularly with respect to marginalized and racialized groups. 
Robert graduated from Dartmouth College with a degree in sociology, and he has a master's degree in education from the Harvard Graduate School of Education, uh, which is where Manuel and I had the good fortune of meeting him. And uh, if you didn't know from that resume, that also means I had the privilege of going to school with Robert twice. Um, and he has another master's <laughs> from Trinity College in American Studies and is working on his PhD from UConn, a man with many letters after his name. Welcome, Robert Cotto, to All the Above. And I'm going to kick it over to Manuel for our first question. Yeah, that's a lot, a lot of degrees a there. A lot of now. stuff. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's too much. <laughs> no, that's dope. That's super dope. And Robert, I don't, the, the last time I saw you in person, you might not remember, but um, you were running past me, scoring touchdowns in a park during our <laughs> our uh, grad school two-hand touch uh, football games. And I hope you added two-hand touch football phenom to your to your CV or your resume, because that's, that's my memory of you darting past me. And I'm so happy to have you here and so happy to see the work that you've been doing in education for sure. Now, now as somebody who cares deeply about education and education policy, especially as it uh, pertains to our public schools and our most marginalized populations, I can imagine the last four years under, under Betsy DeVos must have been a bit stressful, a bit... Um, frustrating. And now we have a new incoming Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, who of course has worked in your neck of the woods in, in Connecticut. So we're wondering if we could start with just your, your thoughts about what should be some of the education policy priorities for the incoming administration. Yeah, so thank you so much, Manuel. Uh, and it is good to see you. Um, you were running past me and making some touchdowns too. So I <laughs> appreciate that. Um, but yeah, we have this new, uh, you know, we have an outgoing uh, Secretary of Ed, uh, DeVos, and a new one coming in. And the new one coming in is from Connecticut. So, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of um, a good thing for Connecticut in some ways. Um, but, you know, so what should be the priorities? Um, obviously, we have, you know, what, how we're going to approach schooling uh, during this, like, you know, pandemic time. COVID-19 uh, is a big, is a big uh, issue. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how uh, both Biden and Cardona approach uh, bringing kids back to school. I think there's been a promise that says bring kids back in 100 days, um, you know, throughout the country. And uh, I think that that's going to be a challenge, right? Because every every community is having different uh, levels of COVID, different like, you know, different sort of issues on the ground in terms of their buildings, in terms of what parents need. So uh, I think we need to have a conversation about you know, what that's going to look like, how that's going to work. Um, there may be some new funding that comes in from that. Um, and, you know, in Connecticut, it's been sort of tricky, right, in terms of like bringing, bringing students back in the building. Um, and so that's going to be a big issue. Um, I think down the road, or even maybe like sort of right now, is um, like funding issues, right? So like, um, you know, districts are really struggling, whether it be in person or online, um, to, to kind of restart. And then people are looking down the road, uh, you know, what's going to happen when, you know, uh, schools, districts need more funding, right. And what the federal government is going to do there. Um, and then last, I mean, I mean, it's not last, but, uh, the big thing is kind of like reshaping, um, the, the, the department of education, right. People are talking about, uh, in particular, like civil rights issues. Um, and, you know, traditionally the ed, the ed, uh, department, has helped with civil rights stuff, has helped with um, helping students that need support. And it's kind of veered away from that. And so I think it's gonna hopefully go more in the direction of let's let's support kids' civil rights, let's support uh, you know, kids that need help and so on and so forth. So those are like the three big areas right there uh, that I see are coming forward. Yeah. Robert, I'm, I'm wondering, um, you know, I was, uh, we were joking before we started filming here that I feel like I've heard the word Connecticut in education uh, <laughs> more in the last month than I've heard in the 10 years before that. And I think that the elevation of Miguel Cardona has kind of, you know, made people say, well, like, well, what's happening in the schools in Connecticut, right? Um, and also to me, I don't know if you would share this perspective, but I feel like a lot of people don't really know what Connecticut is like, right? They, they know it's like near New York, but they, you know, maybe don't necessarily understand the kind of like, um, you know, Hartford is sort of a major urban center, but lots of also like smaller cities that may not be on people's radar screens, but have a lot of the same complex issues 
that larger urban areas have, um, at least, you know, through the lens of education. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about like what, you know, what has been happening in education in the state of Connecticut? What some of the, you know, kind of issues, complexities are there that might also, you know, shed some light on, um, you know, Miguel Cardona's priorities at the, at the national level or, or just things we should be worrying about at the national level. Mm-hmm. So Connecticut, um, it's, it's a kind of t- uh, traditional Northeastern state. Uh, every town has a school district associated with it. There's a few regional districts out in the rural areas. Um, and there's um, an increasing number of districts that you might be called urban. You know, you always had the Hartfords, the Bridgeports, the New Havens, um, but, and, you know, which were uh, primarily Black and Latino um, over the last, you know, two decades, in particular, three decades at least. And, um, you know, it's it's sort of different than like a big, like I think maybe New York City may even be bigger in some ways than some, like it's just a whole other level of something. But, you know, Connecticut has those small little town districts, right? And those little regional districts and then those big city districts. And so that's kind of been um, the kind of the way that people see Connecticut, um, you know, in terms of traditional public schools. And in the last couple of years, you know, when uh, Cardona came in, uh, we were still sort of, um, dealing with sort of race to the top, you know, tradition, th- those sort of like new policies of, you know, more charter schools, more choice, uh, and that sort of thing, uh, more um, connection of testing to like teacher evaluations. So when Cardona came in, maybe a, a year or two ago to uh, the, the commissioner's uh, post, he, he sort of like settled down some of those things, right? Like sort of like said, okay, like some of those things didn't work out necessarily the way that we wanted. And so it was sort of like a quiet, a kind of calming or quieting period. Uh, um, in particular, there were some things on, um, you know, teacher evaluations was sort of reformed again. Uh, charter school accountability was reformed again. So, you know, it's, it's sort of like a mix of like a new person, but also people were asking for changes for fixing those things because they were like, this stuff didn't work for race to the top. And so, um, you know, that's, the kind of Connecticut scene, um, you know, I think one of the things that, um, you know, might, I think one of the, one of the areas that people are starting to talk about that Connecticut hasn't really sort of grappled with is sort of like, um, sort of how does, how do school districts, how does the state connect to, uh, whether it be nonprofit or kind of, um, you know, organizations that want to collaborate with school districts. I think that's kind of an area that people are starting to like, look at more closely and say whether it's worth it, how does it work, and, and so on. So, um, you know, those are some of the things that, um, you know, I think are big. And obviously the big question, the most immediate one is uh, COVID-19. So like, you know, Connecticut um, Connecticut State Department of Ed uh, basically said to districts, um, you know, districts, you figure out how you want to reopen. It could be a hybrid where people are part in person or online. It could be all remote online, um, which is not 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 really like um, it wasn't the preference necessarily of the state. New Haven went all online and sort of gotten a lot of pressure not to do that um, or in person. And so um, that's kind of like been the big issue in Connecticut. And I think the governor of Connecticut and Cardona have really been behind that sort of uh, issue. And um, frankly, I think there's some there's a lot of questions about how that has worked and whether that can be applied to the federal level, in my opinion. Um, There's actually more cases of COVID in students in schools in Connecticut in the the in-person and hybrid, which is part in-person schooling. So in other words, the remote cases, there's actually fewer kids getting COVID or being, you know, saying that they have COVID in the remote compared to the in-person types of schooling. And that's something that I've been talking about a little bit on Twitter, little bit on Facebook. And so, you know, I think we, Connecticut really hasn't sort of looked closely at that and said, you know, what's going on here? You know, as how is this working out? Um, And so that's something that I would say we need to start asking at the federal level, you know, when Miguel Cardona and Joe Biden say, let's get kids back in a hundred days. And it's like, okay, well, let's look at what's happened in Connecticut and how that has worked out. Right. So that's the thing I would, I would add there. So, so then, I mean, let's talk about that, that 100-day plan a little sure. bit more then. I mean, sure. that's, 
that's the push, right? That's what we keep hearing. And as somebody who teaches in California, I know that that's not going to happen here, at least not in LA County with the way the numbers are looking now. But what are your thoughts about the 100 day idea? Like, where do you stand on that policy? And what do you think based on your research and experience? Like, what do you think the competing struggles and interests are around, you know, trying to get uh, kids back in the school building, but then knowing that certain communities are disproportionately affected by this pandemic? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't, I'm not saying I have the answers, but I've, you know, I want the compare, answers. I want to, I want, I want to compare, right now. <laughs> well, I want to compare, but also say like what, you know, what I've sort of looked into. So, um, you know, what's fascinating is that you look at the big cities in, in the country, right? So you look at Hart, Hartford's not the, the biggest city, obviously it's, a, it's, it's a medium-sized city. Um, but you look at Hartford, something like two-thirds of parents were given, or I'm sorry, people were given the choice. Do you want to come back to in-person or online schooling, right? About two-thirds of parents said, I want to do remote. I don't want to go back into the school, right? Um, and then, so uh, there's another district in Hartford that also had a somewhat similar, uh, similar findings. Just this week, we had Chicago, right? And I've read something like 20, only 20% of parents that were eligible to bring their children back said, we're going back in person. So you see these patterns, like, you know, these kind of, uh, these kind of um, things that are happening. I think New York City also had a, a sort of low number as well of, of percentage of people saying we're going back in person. And so, um, you know, I just, I, you know, we have to start answering the, asking the question, you know, what's being, um, you know, what's happening here, right? What's going on? And I think, um, part of it is in a place like Connecticut, the governor said, we need to reopen schools so that employers can know that their employees have childcare. And so that was kind of like the big thing. And so I actually did, um, I actually did a, a survey uh, in August asking Hartford parents, why are you, or Hartford area parents rather, why are you sending your students, your ch children back to school in person or not? And what they said was, um, the, for the folks that said, I'm sending my child back in person, the biggest thing that they said was work, not just work, full-time work. And so it wasn't necessarily, I want my kid to learn and, and they can only happen in, in an in-person school. It was that they literally didn't have childcare to go back to work as a full-time employee. And so that was like the big, um, and not, not, I'm not saying it's even like, you know, it's qualitative. They wrote it. And it was quantitative as well. Like it's literally like popped up off the screen. And then what did people say when they said, oh no, I, I can't I can't necessarily, you know, I don't want to go in in person necessarily. They said, I'm concerned about my child's safety from COVID. I don't know how it's going to look. I don't know about the plans that are happening in the school system. Um, and so that's really what the parents said on, on that level is that they said, I just don't, I don't, I don't look at it. In particular in that group, it was a small group but black or African-American parents, it was only a small number. It was like 17 out of 155 people that, that participated in my survey. Um, but 17 of the folks were uh, identified as black. 14 of those 17 said, I'm not going back to school in person because of safety, because of safety and like that group. And so you see that in patterns. There's other surveys that have been done, New York City, other places that have said parents that are black, that are Latino are concerned about safety. So um, it's sort of, I, I, I'm still trying to process like how that, how that sort of, um, how does that work when you then apply the, maybe the Connecticut model of reopening with a remote and in-person or maybe Chicago model even, how is that going to work on the national level, right? Where you have, uh, black African-American Latino parents are saying, you know, on the one hand, I want my kid to be safe, but I have to go back to work and I need childcare. So those are some of like the things that I think are going to kind of come to play and I'm, I don't know how it's going to work exactly, but uh, you know, those are the sort of debates that are going to kind of pop up, I think, uh, as we go through. And I know there's there's some sort of plans about you know they want to do testing for COVID and they want more masks and so on and so forth. But I think there is just like a deep concern on parents that are like, you know, I'm scared about my child's safety um, at this moment, and then you know people that have to go back to work. In fact, many of the people that said they have to go back to work, they said. I would prefer not to send my kid in person, but I have to go back to work. So, you know, if people really did have a choice or an option, many, most of them would have stayed home. So with their, with their children. And so, 
that's kind of an interesting, you know, dynamic. I don't know how it's going to play out, but I think we need to have that conversation before, you know, you know, at, or as we're sort of like trying to do this hundred day thing to say like, well, let's back in Chicago and New York, Hartford about how this has played out. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see for sure. And as you were talking there, um, Robert, I think, some, you know, some of the, uh, the ways in which, Hartford, the ways in which Connecticut, you know, really functions as a bit of a microcosm of America, um, you know, maybe is becoming a bit, a bit more clear to folks uh, in a way that maybe a lot of folks weren't aware of. And, um, you know, I'm wondering if you can share with us a little bit about, you know, as, as someone who has spent a lot of time researching, you know, thinking about administering policy around issues of equity in education, um, if you could share with us a little bit about, like, some of the stuff that has been happening in, in Hartford and in Connecticut and, um, you know, maybe lessons learned or implications that you think should be driving our kind of national conversation or policy agenda um, that you've learned in, in your context in Hartford. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Hartford, um, in terms of like the, the ed, the ed uh, kind of ed uh, universe or environment here, um, it's sort of well-known uh, in particular, around the idea of uh, a school desegregation case, uh, this is Chef versus O'Neill case. It's it's been covered um, by a number of different um, kind of national and New York Times and stuff like that. So um, you know what's kind of unique about it in some ways is um, it has uh, a number of interdistrict magnet schools. Um, and so what happened is the court basically found Connecticut, Hartford, uh, the way that you assign students to schools is uh, unconstitutional, right? And so the response was, well, let's do school choice, in particular magnet schools, interdistrict, that kind of cross the lines of, of you know, going from suburbs to city, right? Because Hartford's a, little, a, smaller, uh, a smaller city. And so, uh, you know, we've had this sort of massive growth of uh, interdistrict magnet schools and, you know, people, these schools have won awards. I help, I actually connect with one and work with one. Um, through my own work uh, at Trinity College. And so it's like a big deal, right? And on the other hand, um, you know, sort of, sort of my newer work looks at, you know, well, what's sort of like the other side of this, right? And so um, sort of the other side is um, there's been sort of cases that have um, been concerned about how we assign kids to magnet schools. There's other similar cases around the country. Um, so there's that. And I think I think if, if, our, if I were to sort of like, be in charge of, of like what we're sort of starting to look at is like, you know, curriculum, teaching and learning. Those are some of the things that we really haven't talked about in Connecticut. Um, so the, like this year, there is a new uh, black and Latino history curriculum that's supposed to be uh, kind of coming out in Connecticut. But those sort of questions about, well, what are kids learning? What does it look like to have school desegregation, um, you know, in, in Connecticut? Um, you know, I think people are starting to kind of get a little bit of into that, right? So in other words, we looked at all the numbers and said, oh, about half the kids are in a magnet school. But I think we're kind of making a a shift in sort of our research and saying, well, how is this working out for kids? How is this working out for parents? A little bit more. Um, And so that's kind of where where I think, you know, we need to start start looking at, um, you know, to kind of take stock of what what, what has happened. So, um, you know, that's what I would say right now. um, It's sort of the lesson learned is, you know, we can do desegregation, and I know, I know we can talk a little bit about this a little more, but we can do desegregation, but we also have to look at how it's implemented, right? So, yeah. Yeah, so on the show, we've, we've spoken about school segregation a number of times in different contexts, and it sounds like you're um, particularly aware of, of the context around, around Hartford, around Connecticut, and particularly as it pertains to magnet schools. I, I happen to teach at a school that very recently became a magnet. And, mm. you know, so far we are holding holding close and holding tight to our, <laughs> our local students who were there way before it became a magnet. But there, you know, there's that that fear that the, the magnet element might change the, the demographics of the school. And some say that's, you know, that's, that's a nice way to integrate schools. And in the era of Nice white parents uh, podcast and and a lot of discussions around school segregation and integration. We're wondering if you know just in a in a, a broader scale, like do you do you think that school integration is possible in our current context, and is it even desirable? 
Yeah, so it's a big, <laughs> it's a big question, obviously. Um, we only ask the big ones here. Yeah, only you ask, ask the, the big, big ones. ones. <laughs> um, well, I, I would say, like, like taking it back a little bit and thinking about, like, okay, the people in other other cities and pe- people in places like Hartford, what they were thinking about in terms of, like, desegregation, integration, right? And so there were people that were in, in Hartford saying, you know, desegregation might be thought of as a numerical concept, right? Like, you know, you put numbers of people together. And integration may be more of a sort of like, you know, um, a cultural or sort of power mm-hmm. dynamic, right? Like, do you do, you know, is it just um, kind of connecting kids in a, in a sort of personal way? I'm uh, sorry, in a sort of like numbers way? Or are we connecting kids? Are kids learning from each other, right? Are kids le- are able to learn? Um, and again, not that, not just that people of color are learning from white people, but that white people are learning from people of color, right? Yeah. And, there's, there's, so there's a number of scholars, there's a number of people that were thinking that when they were pushing um, quality integrated schools or education in Connecticut. Okay. So, um, you know, just, and that was like a national sort of, you know, thinking, particularly among black scholars, um, you know, 30, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And I think what something, what we have to do in a, in a place like, um, you know, Connecticut is saying, you know, or, and, you know, looking more broadly nationally is like, you know, we can get kids to be together in terms of numbers, using choice, using magnet schools. There's different districts that do sort of um, different sort of diversifying districts, like a Cambridge, Massachusetts. You know, they use sort of um, you know kind of um, not racial balancing exactly, but they kind of reshape who's in schools, right? I think uh, Seattle, Washington. There's different cities that do that sort of thing. But I think what what I think the big question is, you know, what does integration look like in the school? How are kids of color, whether they be black, Latino, Asian, how are they elevated and supported in a numerically desegregated environment? And I think, I think that's a, like, so I think that needs to be answered when people are pushing for more desegregated schools, more integrated schools, right? So if you have a policy that says, we'll have choice, right? And we'll have kids come to this magnet and the federal government will give more monies to magnet. Okay. How are you going to help kids that may be coming in or other kids are coming in um how are you going to help those students and support them not just in learning but also in their power and their status right or is this going to be some of like what they call uh what they call like second generation segregation right where like you know you have the kids of color and the kids in lower status are treated um with less power within within a school that numerically is desegregated so i think we need to have more of that conversation uh when we're talking about uh, sort of these issues because I think we're starting to see that now that we're looking a little more closely in places like Hartford, what that looks like in a school um, in terms of some of like the challenges of, you know, going beyond just the number desegregation and really so- saying what does integration look like in this school and our kids being elevated. So that's what I would say is like the kind of the direction we really need to start asking questions about, um, you know, I'm not quite in the Derek Bell level of like, you know, let's let's kind of like not do any of this stuff right um you know but he was a smart person and he understood that when you do put people together right some people have more power than others and how is that going to shape what people what kids learn and how people are treated right so i think that's kind of the next the, the way we need to look at it yeah uh robert i'm wondering for folks who you know might be especially intrigued by by what you were just framing there are there any examples from either just from your personal experience working in, you know, a few different versions of, of those kinds of magnet schools in Hartford um, or others that you're aware of that, you know, you could share any um, insights into like how, how have folks taken on that work of not just stopping the integration conversation that do the numbers look right, but but the real integration of um you know of valuing students within the within the community any examples of things you've seen that that are interesting folks might want to learn from yeah i mean obviously i'll defer to people to there's a ton of scholars not maybe not some but there's a bunch of scholars that are really awesome at this um uh that have looked particularly at like detracking stuff i have a colleague at uconn shannon holder that's looking at this um and so there's a number of people that are looking at this from a scholar level. So I don't want to say that I'm a, a scholar and how that works exactly, but I will say that, you know, there are some, like, um, there are areas that you could think about, like, okay, um, if you have a school that numerically is desegregated, how do you do AP? How do you do, um, who gets to be an AP? Is it open? Is it a test? 
right? So those are sort of like those are sort of like little areas that like that matter. Um, um, so I mean, it's it's those sort of like you know, there's policies and then like how those are sort of implemented, uh, you know, are sort of important. Um, I've had conversations, not just at, uh, at various schools where sometimes uh, kids don't even know uh, that they can take a particular class or a particular, uh, you know, special like AP or what, whether it be like a college level type thing. And the kids have no idea. They're like, I had no idea I could take that class. And then you ask like adults and they're like, oh no, it's open to everybody. And so it's not just, you know, it's like written rules and the unwritten rules of like some of the power dynamics. And again, I'll defer to like there's other scholars that have talked about, you know, how these sort of, um, you know, opportunities play out within schools. But that's just like one, one little example of like, um, you know, where we have to start digging uh, at what desegregation looks like. Otherwise, my worry is that um, like Hartford, maybe, like, you know, five, 10 years ago, we only look at the numbers of kids in a school, right? And then that that worries me when we just look at that piece. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. 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 And I've written on this. I've written on like numbers of kids in schools by race, uh, by race, uh, by by class, and so on and so forth. And it's it's helpful to look at. But I think we also need to look at well, how are the schools working? How are that? How's that happening? So. Yeah, well, uh, thank you for all that. You're very, very profound and very important points that you made there with regards to integration versus desegregation. Uh, lots to lots to chew on there. We want to ask you before before you get out of here. Uh, before we get out of here, you've been a classroom teacher. You've been a, a lecturer. You've been a school board member. We we already listed those those degrees that you've been earning and, and continue to earn. So we're wondering, you know, what's what's next on the horizon for for Robert Cotto Jr. Uh well thank you. Uh you know thank you so much for your for your time. Um you know in terms of horizon um uh just this week I'm now all but dissertation. <laughs> so nice, uh, nice. So you know I passed uh my proposal and you know write write this dissertation. And, um, you know, hopefully from there, you know, we'll see, uh, I, I, I'd like the college environment. Um, I like being with, uh, but I also like being sort of in the middle of like, you know, working with students and parents outside of, uh, academia, but also being a little bit in it. So, you know, I like that sort of like relationship. So we'll see, you know, we'll see what happens. Maybe I can find, keep, keep doing what I'm doing. Um, and keep growing, keep growing that, that work. You know what I mean? Um, cause I think there's a lot of work, uh, in that area, uh, here in Connecticut that could be shared with other people, particularly now that people are like, oh, let's do more integration. Let's do more desegregation. And I'm like, okay, well, first take a look at what we've been doing in Hartford uh, for better or for worse so that we can, we can really do this well. Well, Robert Cotto, uh, once again, want to thank you for being on All the Above with us today. It has been such a pleasure having you here, sharing your expertise, your wisdom, um, your experiences in the state of Connecticut, um, a state that is now presumably giving us our next um, Secretary of Education uh, for the United States. And um, really appreciate having you on with us, uh, sharing a bit of your, of your knowledge with our audience. Um, so thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, folks, that is it for today's seminar. Next up is our class dismissed. Stay tuned. All right, folks, we have reached that time in the episode, our class dismissed, where we like to give some shout outs or recognition to folks out there doing good things in the field of education. Manuel, who we got today? Yeah, well, Jeff, today's shout out, it's a, it's, it's a little different. It's a little different. We don't actually know the name of this person that we want to shout out, but we want to shout out the work that they are doing online on social media. I don't know if they're on multiple social media platforms or only Twitter. I happen to follow them on Twitter. Um, I, I guess maybe they also have an Instagram and a Facebook. I don't know. But whoever this person is has been tweeting out the information of school personnel who have been lost to covid so the account itself is titled School Personnel Lost to COVID. And if you were to look at the bio on Twitter, it simply says, you know, it's at 
lost to COVID. And it says obtained from public sources. And it has a running number of educators. And for each person profiled here, essentially, this this account has been posting their, their whatever photograph was available in the local article about this uh, the educator who has passed. And it gives their biographical information. So let me pull one up as an example. So for example, January 20th, Latina Perry, 42, died on January 10th. She was a curriculum specialist at Wakefield Creative School in Raleigh, North Carolina. And then it has a quote about the person um, that is linked to either the local reporting or the person's obituary. So for Latina Perry, it says, Miss Tina loved her job and her students, and she leaves behind her husband and two children. And then it has links there for you to read more. In certain cases, there's GoFundMe links if the uh, family of the, the um, individual has a GoFundMe, and it has a, a image of the individual so you could see who they were and what they look like. And to me, this is a very humanizing reminder that those numbers that all I think all of us have have reached a point where the numbers just it's hard to even process it and it's hard to sort of see them as more than just numbers but these are real people here and this account I think is doing a pretty good job of of bringing a, a humanizing lens to educators specifically who have been lost to covid a lot of folks you know educators across the country are out there in in many cases in hybrid situations in person situations risking their lives and it needs to be you know discussed and and their work and their service needs to be honored because Man, this is more than just numbers, all right? So whoever's running this account, school personnel lost to COVID. I kind of like that they are they don't give their own personal information. So it's not like, you know, I don't, whoever's running this account doesn't seem to be trying to do it to like promote themselves or anything because you can't even tell who it is. But they do, under each post, list the links to the local reporting. So it's not, you know, you don't have to worry about if this is like, you know, made up. Unlike the 1776 report, they, they list their sources and you can read for yourself. Um, more about about the folks posted here, so it's a tr touching tribute, I think, and uh, you know I follow them, and it, it's a reminder to me every time I see a new tweet from them that educators out there are are paying a hefty price during this pandemic. Yeah, yeah, Manuel, um, I agree. I you know it's it's an important service that they're doing, especially in this you know in this year that we have been dealing with COVID where we haven't really had many or any uh, kind of large scale uh, moments of remembrance, right, of, of folks who passed. And of course, we don't know for sure that all of these people contracted COVID um, because of their work as educators, right? But just right. acknowledging that educators are being impacted by this and that the, the decisions to be in person or not um, you know, certainly uh, weigh heavily um, on us all. So props to uh, to this account, which is at lost to COVID. If you want to check them out um, yourselves, um, props to them and keep up the uh, the important, important work. All right, folks, we have come to the end of our episode. Really want to thank everyone for joining us today. Uh, it's always such a pleasure to have you here with us on All the Above. And if you like what you heard, if you like what you saw today, please do us a favor. Make sure you like, make sure you follow, make sure you subscribe. Um, give us that five-star review if you're listening uh, to the podcast. Um, you know, write a little something positive about the show. Share it with a colleague. Share it with a friend, someone who you think might be interested as well. And of course, um, you can find out all you want to find out about our show on our website, which is aotashow.com. Again, that's aotashow.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.